Greetings in the Master's name. <clears throat> and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> we want to continue our study in Hebrews. Very brief review uh, from... Um, I was reading in Halley's Bible Handbook. It's very brief, uh, very brief summary as you as you read in Halley's Bible Handbook. Very brief summary of the of the chapters, books, and so on. I really encourage each person to have it. It's a it's not a real in depth Bible study tool, but it's uh, it's good. And uh, in other words, you don't have to read if you want to if you want to read something about a chapter or something. You don't have to read four or five pages to get the gist of it. Uh, so. The, uh, I like the older versions. The newer version's pretty sick. It's not a big book, but uh, when I see the old ones at Gift and Thrift, I usually pick them up because I like the smaller and better. But anyway, just... So these are some thoughts from uh, Halley's Bible Handbook. Uh, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the warning there, he says, Note the fearful warning in verses 2 and 3 that if disobedience to the word of angels was dangerous... How much more dangerous to be neglectful of words spoken by Jesus? Well, we've certainly mentioned that. But the words spoken by Jesus, like, so Jesus was a great teacher, people think, even when they don't accept him as divine. Uh, a lot of philosophers say that, you know, it's tremendous ethics there and so on. Um, now, Gandhi, as I understand it, Gandhi never became a Christian, but he, I think he told some Christians one time that if Christians would have actually lived according to the way Jesus taught, that he might have been one. <laughs> so, uh, um, anyway, I'm not, maybe I'm not saying it quite right, but uh, he saw the disconnect between what Jesus taught and what, how Christians live. And uh, uh, Gary Miller has this uh, little book that's only about 86 pages on Jesus really said that? If you just take it face value, what Jesus said is pretty radical. Well, verses 14 and 15, and I mentioned those various times. Uh, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And so uh, this is what uh, Halley said about that. Christ has become one with man, sharing with man his temptations and sufferings, even death itself, that he might enable man to become one with him, to share with him his nature and his dominion. And then the last couple verses of chapter 2, where it says, uh, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted he is able to succor them that are tempted. And so again summarizing that and now man in his effort to become one with Christ and thus qualify for his glorious inheritance yet to be has assurance that Christ is gracious and kindly and understanding and will be helpful to those who love him. So just a little review and summary there from things in chapter 2. Okay, now reading chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, 
Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who had builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. In uh, chapter 2, uh, the writer to the Hebrews had so, and in chapter one also had shown how Christ was superior to the angels, and angels were well. The, the law was given by angels by Moses, but in the New Testament, I forget which verse it is now, it talks about angels, and so that was important to the Jewish Christians. But Moses was also highly venerated. Uh, the lawgiver. And uh, so here, the writer is showing how Christ is superior to Moses. Moses was a servant in the house. Christ was the son, the owner of the house. So just pointing that out. Um, again, what Halley says here, Christ is as far above Moses as the heir and owner of a house is above the servants in the house. And then we have this, we have another warning. We have a warning in the, at the beginning of chapter 2. We have a warning here, the last part of chapter 3, the last half, uh, talking about our rest, or the possibility of rest, but the ones then that did not receive the rest because of their... Um, Hardening of their hearts, I guess. And this is what um, Halley says. We become partakers of Christ if we hold fast unto the end. 
be on guard against falling into unbelief and disobedience. This warning is one of the keynotes of the epistle, repeated with increasing earnestness in chapter 6 and chapter 10. The example is cited of the Israelites who, after being delivered out of Egypt with mighty signs and wonders, yet because of unbelief and disobedience, perished in the wilderness and never reached the promised land. If they failed because they were disobedient to the word of Moses, what hope can there be for those who are disobedient to Christ? So it's pretty serious. Now these verses here in uh, 7 to 11, it's interesting, he says, wherefore as the Holy Ghost saith, and he's quoting from the Psalms. And so I'd like to read those verses from the Psalms. You turn to Psalm 95. We have almost identical wording. Psalm 95, and here in Psalm 95, it's also verses 7 to 11. The end of verse 7 in Psalm 95. Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So the danger of falling away. Verse 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Uh, there it says, in departing from the living God. The uh, American Standard Version says, Take heed, brethren, lest haply there shall be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God. The Bible in basic English says turning away. So the idea is falling away. The process, and in the process through which this falling away takes place is an evil heart of unbelief. And it says, lest there be in any of you. It's speaking to us individually. And it says, in departing from the living God. And that's interesting. In departing from the living God. Uh, that's, um, that term is used four times here in Hebrews. Uh, it's in chapter 9, verse 14. It says, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without God, without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. To serve the living God. And uh, 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in 12.22, You're coming to Mount Zion and into the city of the living God. Now turn to Psalm 115.
You're going to read the first 13 verses. Psalm 115. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, Where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. <clears throat> their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord hath been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. Tremendous contrast there between the living God and the gods that people make for themselves. And here in our setting, in our country, is not so much of smelting gods from gold and silver or carving gods from wood, but people do make their own gods. And they're just as helpless as these gods in this chapter. Let's go get to Jeremiah 10 and a little bit along the same line. Jeremiah 10, verses 3 to 6. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as a palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Someone said it this way, men make idols and carry them. God makes men and carries them. Maybe I should read that again. Men make idols and carry them. God makes men and carries them. Jesus asked the disciples, whom do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Okay, back to Hebrews 3 in this warning. <clears throat> the peril of falling away from the living God. It says here, in departing from the living God. That is a, um, a fairly strong word. It's the idea of remove, revolt, desist, desert. 
it does not mean merely stumbling, but refers to apostasy, which is definite, deliberate departure from God. Reading a little bit here from this book, uh, God's Last Word to Man, Studies in Hebrews by G.C. Morgan. He says, um, this thing about departing from the living God, <clears throat> we may be inclined to say at once that surely that cannot be done. And yet the whole force of the warning is a revelation of the fact that such apostasy is possible. No one ever intends to apostatize there was an hour when Simon Peter said to Jesus, Though all shall forsake thee, yet will not I. And there is no reason to doubt his sincerity in the declaration. Nevertheless, he did forsake his Lord, and that so positively as to deny him with oaths and curses. Such apostasy, however, is not never a sudden thing. There are multitudes of people today who have apostatized. They would resent being described as infidels, but the living God is not real to them in any practical sense. They have departed from him, dismissed him from the realm of consideration, and while perhaps still professing intellectual conviction of his existence, live as though there were no God. So it says, take heed, brethren, lest there be an any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Now, I, I set this up here for a little bit of word study. Um, if I had time, I maybe would have written this up ahead of time, but uh, So the word here in verse 12, unbelief, is this Greek word here, apostea, apostea, and it's used 12 times in the New Testament, and it's always translated unbelief. Uh, that is the noun form of the word. Now, and maybe this isn't all that important, but apostos is the, uh, is the adjective form of the word, and it means, according to Bynes Dictionary, not worthy of confidence, distrustful. And this word in the Gospels is always translated uh, it's always translated faithless in the Gospels. In the epistles, it's translated unbelieving or believe not. Um, now, a, a little, let's see. Maybe I'll just mention this now. Uh, I'm going to bring it out a little bit later, but these words, the uh, okay, so this means unbelief or um, faithless or so on. The, the, in the Greek, the letter A is the prefix that means not. And so there's actually a word that's spelled similar to this or maybe almost identical without the A that means believe. 
And the same thing here would be faithful, not instead of unfaithful. And so it's like in English, we have um, unhappy. UN is the prefix that means not, not happy. Or, um, or um, well, we have various ones in English. English is very complicated. Um, but uh, irreplaceable can't be replaced, not replaceable. Um, nonsense. Not sense. <laughs> I mean, N O N means not. Um, so, anyway, that's, uh, but the A just means not in, in Greek. So, uh, I'll, I'll get some verses here in a little bit uh, that illustrate that. But then, uh, if you go to the, um, okay, here in Hebrews 3, so we have in, in verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now go down to verse 18 and 19. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So in verse 18, we have believed not. In verse 19, we have unbelief. There are two different words in the Greek. They're synonyms, but there's a slight difference. So the word that's translated believe not is this word. And it's um, apatheo. It means to disbelieve willfully and per perversely. And it's has the, it has more the idea of disobedience so that's the slight difference. The one is speaking of unbelief and the other one is speaking of disobedience. And the unbelief is, um, yeah, um, this one here, this disobedience, it has the idea of uh, refusing to be persuaded. Um, and the noun form of this word, this is actually a verb, the noun form of the, of the word uh, is in the... Um, Revised version is always translated disobedience. So in studying this, and of course, I was just reviewing it this time, but when I was first really digging into this, it impressed me the, the synonyms here and the connection between unbelief and disobedience. Unbelief and disobedience. Um, so... Um, So it has the idea of lack of confidence, uh, unwilling to be persuaded, uh, spurning belief. Uh, so it's stubbornly rebellious, obstinately disobedient, headstrong, perverse. That's, that's this word here. It's the one that's translated believe not here. And in, uh, in, in, uh, maybe I'll read a little bit um, more from uh, Morgan. What he, said, what he says about that. Um, An examination of the passage in which the text occurs will show the differing terms that are used therein to describe the failure of the people's sin, unbelief, disobedience. These are synonymous terms. They heard the word, but proved their practical unbelief by disobedience. And the result was that they lost their sensitiveness to the divine order. There are people in the world today who will say of certain attitudes and actions, my conscience does not condemn me. 
That may be a terrible thing to say, revealing the fact that the conscience is hardened, has lost its true functioning power. Oftentimes, when conscience does not condemn us, we should condemn our conscience. Unbelief is not failure in intellectual apprehension. It is disobedience in the presence of the clear commands of God. Unbelief is disobedience in the presence of the clear commands of God. The whole process and result is revealed in the sentence that follows, wherein the writer warns us in the words, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is thus that those who have heard the speech of God may apostatize from the living God. Such a condition is described as evil, an evil heart of unbelief. The Greek word there rendered evil means harmless, harmful, destructive. Unbelief in the sense of disobedience to the revealed will of God, whether through Moses or the Son, is not only merely wrong, but completely destructive of life. Reminds me, uh, Brother Fred Miller uh, worked with many years in West Virginia, and uh, there at, uh, at uh, close to Green Bank, there, Arborville, there was a, a church of God. And uh, Brother Fred, one time talking to the pastor there, said, uh, what, uh, what, what, I don't know if I have it exactly the way it was, but what, what caused a person to lose out or, or, you know, start slipping in their Christian life? And uh, Church of God pastor, he had it dead on. He said, when they know to do something and don't, that's where it starts. When God says something to you and you don't listen, you say no to him. And that's, that's starting a downward slide. And uh, so that's, that's the disobedience part. Uh, I'm going to read these last two verses. And then I want to I look at a couple other verses with these words in. But um, the last two verses, 18 and 19, uh, could be read this way. And to whom, to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that disobeyed. So we see that they could not enter in because of a lack of confidence. That, that's some of the meaning there. This, this, this belief or unbelief or lack of confidence or lack of faith. You know, when the spies came back, and see, that's, that's the reference here in the middle of the chapter, those verses 7 to 11. It's going back to the people coming out of Egypt and then being in the wilderness and then being afraid to go into the promised land, and so they all died. You know, every one over 20 died. But it says, it says that my servant Caleb had a different spirit. There's only two of them, Caleb and Joshua. They had a different spirit. They had a spirit of confidence, a spirit of belief, a spirit of obedience. The um, this word here again, the positive part of this word 
and I think it's spelled just a wee bit differently, but it's used like in, um, in John 3, 15 and 16. Uh, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him. See, that's the positive. Uh, and this is unbelief, unbelief, belief. And it's, um, and so to have confidence, God wants us to trust him. He wants us to have confidence in him. And when we don't, it's, it's an affront to him. Um, like, it's interesting, one time the Jews, Jesus was talking about uh, labor for the meat that doesn't perish. And uh, they asked him, how do we work the work of God? Or maybe I should turn to that to get exactly right. I think it's in John 6. Yeah, Jesus said, Labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And you know what he said? It's, 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 it's interesting. Jesus answered and said, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. They said, What do we need to do to work the work of God? He said, Believe. That's pretty impressive, if you think about it. Um, well, this whole thing of trust and faith and belief, um, and maybe I've mentioned this before too, but the word faith, the Amplified Bible, you know how he will have an expression sometimes, a long, strung-out bunch of words to explain something in the Amplified Bible, but for the word faith, like in Colossians 1.4, where you have the word faith, and then he has in those brackets, the leaning of the, your entire human personality on him and absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. That's all in brackets after the word faith. The leaning of your entire human personality on him in absolute trust and confidence in his power, wisdom, and goodness. He, he, he cut it down just a little bit, First Lesson 3-7, the word faith there, the leaning of your whole personality on God in complete trust and confidence. Now, I'd like for you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. And here Moses is sort of reviewing things for him. Uh, well, I'll read 26. Notwithstanding, you would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. And ye murmured in your tents and said, Behold, the Lord hated us. He hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And when I read that, when I first read that, it, it just, um, it's just flabbergasting. That they're saying, they said, God brought us out here in the wilderness to destroy us. And how could they possibly say that? After those ten miracles in Egypt, the plagues and everything he did to bring them out, they had the cloud that uh, was uh, fire by night and by day, and it would go up and it would move, you know, when they were supposed to go. They had all this stuff going on. And they said, God just brought us out here to destroy us. How could they possibly say that? Uh, let's go back to Exodus 17, verse 3. And the people thirsted there for water, 
And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? There it is again. He brought us out here to kill us. Our children and our cattle with thirst. Okay, so we can we can look at them and we can say, Well, there's a pitiful bunch. Now, I didn't just read up on it, but I understand the Sinai Peninsula is pretty harsh, pretty harsh climate. So suppose you were out in the desert. 110 degree, dry, hot wind blowing, no water. Your children are crying for water and the cattle, you know how cattle sound when they're thirsty. And all this is going on. And where's God? What good is those ten miracles back in Egypt going to do you now? Right now, you're dying of thirst. So where's God? So now, do you see why they said he just brought us out here to kill us? If you're about ready to die of thirst. Or seem like it. I'd like for you to turn to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50, the last two verses. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness, and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord, and stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that ye have kindled, this shall ye have of mine hand, ye shall lie down in sorrow. says, if you're walking in darkness, trust in the Lord. It says, if you try to create your own sparks, you're going to lie down in sorrow. So, when you're in a difficult situation, when you're in a real pickle, you're going to trust God or are you going to try and figure your way out? Well, sometimes it's hard for us to know how much we should try and how much we should just wait on the Lord. But <clears throat> the difficult times and the dark times and when you're in the tunnel and there's no light at the end, what are you going to do? The realities of life. Maybe some of you, probably some of you have read this book, um, George Mueller Answers to Prayer. How many of you heard of George Mueller? Probably a number of you, George Mueller had the orphanages, had the orphanages in England. I think he ended up uh, supporting 2,000 orphans. Now, why did he start orphan houses? And he tells why. And it's sort of in the introduction to the book. And it, to me, it's, it, well, it was a little bit surprising. Let me say it that way. He tells why he started the orphan houses. Sometimes I found children of God, God tried in mind by the prospect of old age, when they might be unable to work any longer, and therefore were harassed by the fear of having to go into the poorhouse. If in such a case I pointed out to them how their Heavenly Father has always helped those who put their trust in Him, they might not, perhaps, always say, 
that times have changed, but yet it was evident enough that God was not looked upon them as the living God. My spirit was oftentimes bowed down by this, and I longed to set something before the children of God whereby they might see that he does not forsake, even in our day, those who rely upon him. Another class of persons were brethren in business who suffered in their souls and brought guilt on their consciences by carrying on their business almost in the same way as unconverted persons do. The competition in trade, the bad times, the overpeopled country were given as reasons why, if the business were carried on simply according to the word of God, it could not be expected to do well. Such a brother perhaps would express the wish that he might be differently situated, but very rarely did I see that there was a stand made for God, that there was a holy determination to trust in the living God and to depend on him in order that a good conscience might be maintained. To this class, likewise, I desire to show by visible proof that God is unchangeably the same. Then there was another class of persons, individuals who were in professions in which they could not continue with a good conscience or persons who were in an unscriptural position with reference to spiritual things, but both classes filled on account of their consequences to give up the profession in which they could not abide with God or to leave their position lest they should be thrown out of employment. My spirit longed to be instrumental in strengthening their faith by giving them not only instances from the word of God of his willingness and ability to help all those who rely upon him, but to show them by proofs that he is the same in our day. I well knew that the word of God ought to be enough, and it was by grace enough to me, but still I considered that I ought to lend a helping hand to my brethren if by any means, by this visible proof to the unchangeable faithfulness of the Lord, I might strengthen their hands in God. For I remembered with a great blessing my own soul had received, I remembered what a great blessing my own soul had received through the Lord's dealings with his servant A.H. Frank, who in dependence upon the living God alone established an immense orphan house, which I had seen many times with my own eyes. I therefore judged myself bound to be the servant of the church of God, in the particular point on which I had obtained mercy, namely, in being able to take God by his word and to rely upon it. All these exercises of my soul, which resulted from the fact that so many believers in whom I became acquainted were harassed and distressed in mind or brought guilt on their consciences on account of not trusting in the Lord, were used by God to awaken in my heart the desire of setting before the church at large and before the world a proof that he has not in the least changed, and this seemed to me best done by establishing of an orphan house. And he, he did. He did. But to show, now that was what, in the 1800s? Forget the time exactly there. So he showed the people in his day that you could trust God. Can we trust God? Well, the... Uh, here in Hebrews, it says, Take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing. But the connection between belief and obedience. If you have confidence in someone, if you trust someone, you're going to listen to what they say. And so, 
these last two verses, to them that believed not, to them that disobeyed, they could not enter in because of a lack of confidence. They lacked confidence in God. Therefore, they didn't follow what he said. Now, like that little book I referred to, did Jesus really mean that? Do we have enough confidence in God that we can take him at his word? Even the radical things that are so totally different from the way the natural man thinks? Well, you know, we're supposed to help each other with this. In verse 13, it says, but exhort one another daily. So I had I written down here, what is the answer to, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God? And it's verse 13. It says, exhort. And the word there, exhort, means to call near. Uh, it, it's, it's, so it has the idea of comfort. Uh, to entreat, to pray. And so, you know, we sang, let us pray for each other, not faint by the way. That's what that song says. And see, faint by the way would be, well, wouldn't be exactly the same as falling away, but fainting. So we, and it says, exhort one another daily. So how do we do that? Well, we need to do what we can to encourage each other. That's what it says. Exhort one another daily. We maintain our faith and our confidence in God. In Acts 11.23, it says about Barnabas, the believers in Antioch, a new church up there, they sent Barnabas up to check it out says, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all. And it's the same word here. That with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 11, it says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. You might think that the word edify is the word here, but it's not. It's the word comfort. The word comfort is the one here. It says, uh, exhort one another daily. So encourage, comfort, build up each other uh, that we don't get discouraged. There's things, there, there, there are situations in our lives, there are circumstances in our lives, there, there's things in our life that I don't think we'll ever be able to figure out why it's the way it is. But we need, we need to rely on God. We need to have an unshaken faith in God. We need to encourage each other in that. Let's kneel for prayer.